Uh, Andy, you, your work is about eco-psychology. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, um, there's many sort of ways into the field, but the original sort of impulse is that psychology has been very human-centered. So if you look at psychology textbooks, an intro psych textbook, you won't find a lot about the natural world or um, our relationships with the biosphere. And so eco-psychology, in a sense, is about expanding the, the focus of psychology to include our relationship with the more than human uh, natural world. Um, you, know, you can think of things like children who, um, you know, have storybooks full of animals, and yet psychology didn't really talk about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, how are we related to the natural world? How can the natural world, or does the natural world, um, how do our bodies imply the natural world, imply relations with the natural world, and how have we cut off those relationships and have that affected us, and what does that have to do with our ecological crisis? Yeah, yeah. So, so not just... Um psychology being confined to the mind um, and thinking of the body as something that implies a relationship with the natural world so that we put all of this in context. Right. Yeah. Um, and so eco-psychology became largely an effort to integrate nature and psyche, um, mm -hmm. largely, you know, through the body and with the bodies. Um, what our bodily felt that our bodily felt needs include relationship with natural places and um, movements today like forest bathing and ecotherapy really um, you know take off from that kind of understanding of the the, the psyche being related to the earth. Yeah. Um, so that's what eco psychology has largely become about, and and what a lot of people think of the practice of eco psychology are these sort of nature connective experiences like forest bathing. Uh, if you're familiar with that notion, no. Do you want to say talk a little bit more about that? Well, forest bathing. Uh, the idea is that you know taking a walk in the woods is like to bathe yourself in the forest, and there are all these. Um, you know, phenols and things in the air that are very um, beneficial to um, uh, our minds and our bodies. And so um, researchers in Japan have sort of empirically demonstrated these links and have actually argued for um, not developing certain places, um, you know, preserving woodlands instead of building subdivisions because you know, for mental health reasons, you know, we need to be able to walk in these woods and, and be bathed by the forest for our own well-being. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not just um, uh, having the distraction of being in the woods. It's not just escaping a uh, concrete landscape, but it's also everything else from the smells and uh, um, that could, uh, we could bathe into. Right, so it's sort of more positive effect rather than just mm -hmm. getting away from something. Yeah. Um, so as I say, that's what eco-psychology has largely been associated with. You know, the problem from my perspective is, you know, I came at eco-psychology through environmental studies and as, a, as an ecologist or an ecological thinker. 
And so a lot of these practices still maintain a very human focus. The natural world now becomes a kind of psychological resource. And it's not to say that those connections aren't true and real, but the scope is still limited and we're still not um, making connections through the kind of society we have. We're linking psyche and nature, but not linking psyche, nature, and society. Um, so, so I'm not sure I followed you there. Um, you're talking about something that um, uh, is essentially human-centered as opposed to have a sense of the whole context? That's right. Yeah, the, the whole context, meaning a, a kind of whole that includes not just the term psyche and nature, but also the terms society, because yeah. we live in a society um, that produces wealth through, um, you know, exploiting the natural world and, and including human nature, you know, the, mm -hmm. the exploitation of labor and um, creating divisions, social divisions and polarizations that um, uh, kind of treat a large part of uh, humanity as kind of like a resource to be exploited. Yeah, yeah. So we have that triangle of um, That's right. human beings, nature, and human beings evolve to be in nature, and human beings live in society, and there's that right. tension between what we evolve to be and uh, where we live. That's right. And so if you connect, if you start making connections between psyche and nature, and you start developing an understanding of human nature and um, uh, how that connects to more than human natural, that starts implying a, a totally different kind of society than we have right now. Mm -hmm. And it creates a sort of a critical framework for understanding uh, what's got wrong in, in our society. And, and, and then that becomes very challenging. And then eco-psychology suddenly becomes a very um, critical field as well, not just a therapeutic field. And it's saying that we need a whole, uh, um, different set of social relationships in order to make this integration between mind and nature uh, because our current society works against what ecotherapists are on about. So, so it provides a benchmark um, as to what things could be um, and it becomes prescriptive in showing what needs we need to change in order to create better conditions. Yeah, what needs to change in our society, but also what needs to change in the way we understand um, psychology. Mm -hmm. So if, if psychology has been split off from nature and it's been split off from society, and, and if ecology really stands for seeing the interrelationships between things, then what are the interrelationships between um, our psyches and nature? And what are the interrelationships between uh, psyche and society? And what are the interrelationships between society and nature? You know, mapping all of those relations and tending those relations is, for me, what eco-psychology becomes about as a yeah. field. It changes everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that sense of, um, you know, taking psychology out of that very, very narrow frame. And would you, would you say that, um, you know, paying attention to, uh, you know, understanding more of the body uh, and bottom-up phenomena through, uh, you know, neuroscience, also evolutionary psychology, have been a step toward going toward eco-psychology? 
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly different ways of bringing the body in. Um, um, for, you know, our, our body is nature. We're nature, too. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's any different ways of talking about the body and then linking that to ego psychology because that's our nature. So in terms of, you know, interpersonal neurobiology, you know, that's a way of saying that, you know, we're, we, we, we imply these pro-social relationships with the world, including the natural world, and that's what those experiences are what form the brain. Yeah. Um, you know, my approach comes out of a background in sort of experiential therapies and Buddhist psychology and um, phenomenology, philosophical phenomenology, um, body-centered forms of um, philosophical phenomenology and so um uh you know thinking about where we're at with the body um i think there's a philosopher david abram who talks a lot about how um sensorily disconnected we are because we're so in this tight little loop with our technology and um with um you know the written word um that the the rest of the natural world our senses have just tuned it out right right so we're not just talking about uh, our intense connection to cell phones but it goes also to the written world and so we're more connected to a conceptual world than an experiential world yeah i mean David Abrams got this nice phrase, you know, the body's world. And when, when we when we tune back into the body and the body's world, then the rest of the natural world just sort of comes alive and we start to form relations, you know, once we enter the body's world. And so in some senses, we have to make a, a, a discipline or a practice out of, um, you know, returning to the body's world and putting the cell phone down and putting the book down and entering... Uh, other modes of experience where um, the body's inherent relationship to, uh, you know, a living world can be re-experienced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I'm kind of belaboring the obvious in repeating this, but uh, it seems that, uh, you know, the, the big part is for uh, those of us who do uh, somatic psychotherapy, pay attention to the body. Uh, maybe we don't pay as much attention to the idea that paying attention to the body is a gateway to paying attention to our experienced relationship with the world. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, that's an example of the, the human centeredness of psychology um, where we're, um, you know, quite skilled in the subtleties of, um, you know, body-focused healing processes, um, but we're, we're doing it indoors all the time. Right. And um, so, you know, a, a, a standard practice in the Nature Connection Movement, which I've adopted in, that, in my the teaching I do, there's a year-long training in ego psychology I offer. Um, I, I have the participants um, uh, engage in a routine called sit spot, where you go to the same spot outdoor day after day, And um, you, you'd be in that place in a mindful way and with your senses open. And um, it's an incredibly powerful and simple exercise. 
um, and and has incredible um, you know benefits for people who who do it. Um, so that would be a very sort of simple step that we um, just are are not inclined typically to make. And it's actually hard to get people into the routine of doing sit spots because it goes so against the grain of how we how we so, live. So in practice, you know, how is it on a on a given uh, a few days of training? Just to, uh, what's it like that connection with the environment, with nature? Well, it, there's different dimensions to it. For for a lot of people, um, you know, it's a very kind of rapid homecoming for a lot of people, just to slow down and to be guided through some of these exercises. Um, and for a lot of people, it brings up a lot of grief and uh, a lot of pain um, because once you start tuning into the body's world and and uh, sensing the primacy of our relationships with the earth through the body um, then right away that you know gives rise to um, a profound sense of pain over um, the losses in our relationship with the natural world and um, the, the state of our relationship with the, with the, with the biosphere. Um, so it's a very, it's a very complex, uh, rich yeah. kind of, um, Yeah. So, so that, that sense of experiencing something in our relationship with nature, with the body's world. So in, in the, how, how, do, how does it happen in the training? Is it being outdoors? Is it doing something outdoors? How, how does it, how do, does that relationship become, uh, something that, participants are facing yeah well we spend as much as time as possible outdoors on the trainings um in four seasons mm-hmm. um so you know the first, very first night people arrive you know we're around a campfire and you know which is a very uh, deep in the bone activity for human beings to sit around a fire and tell stories and um reflect on the cosmos you know so we right away try to go to um uh, these deep in the bone places mm-hmm. um, that, you know, again, that our, our bodies, when you're sitting around a, a campfire, uh, our bodies sort of settle right away and they know that place instinctively um, because it, it's so in our physiology in a sense, in our memory to um, be, be sitting in a circle around a fire. It's, it's where human culture developed. Yeah. 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 So, so we, we start there. And uh, and we start with you know story and, and poetry, and and then the next morning right away you know we six thirty we head out and we do a sensory awareness exercise um, you know outdoors and uh, as a warm up to this whole idea of a sit spot, um, and then people find a place on the land where they're going to um, you know have their sit spot. And then the day's activities all take place outdoors as well. And, and you know, there's sort of teaching uh, sessions with me with the, with the flip chart. Um, but all the while we're, we're outdoors. And so, you know, the at any moment, a sharp shin hawk can come and fly in and become part of the conversation or, um, you know, the weather will do something. And it's always part of the dialogue of what's going on, just our being outdoors. Um, right, right. So, so you cannot ignore the outdoors because the outdoors will make its presence known. Yeah. Oh, it does. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, um, and, you know, we pay attention to that. We, we don't just tune that out. Um, and, so you know, people, 
Sorry? What happens, for instance, when, say, it rains or it snows or... Yeah. Well, uh, we make a decision. You know, there's... Uh, last summer we were, um, you know, around the, the fire at night and uh, there's a story that was being told and it started to rain and we just sat through the rain and just kept going with the story. <laughs> and and it was, it was fabulous, you know, right, um, right. and then other times we'll go into, there's a little gazebo we can go into. So we still, um, you know, feel the elements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, in winter we're, we're indoors around the fire, but we make sure we take a good long walk, you know, regardless of the weather in the afternoon and we, we pick cedar in order to make some cedar tea. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's not about, um, um, what's the expression? There's a fellow named Martin Shaw who's, who talks about the difference between comfort and shelter. Mm. And, you know, it's fine to seek shelter, but we can get ourselves too comfortable and then we, we lose touch with the elements and with our elemental nature. Right. So, right. Right. So we so make sure we're, we're in the place of shelter, but not comfort. Right. Right. So you're not avoiding the relationship with nature in order to make comfort a priority. Yeah. 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 So, so um, that just the presence in the, as you describe it, in, in being outdoors during much of the training uh, puts it in a different framework than something that would be just ideas or techniques or even philosophical approaches because there you're in the middle of that. Yeah, I actually, um, I teach, I live near a little town called Perth, kind of 6,000 people, and um, my wife's a yoga instructor and um, so I, I, a number of years ago, I thought I'd offer to teach some classes through their yoga studio. So I started teaching courses on Buddhist psychology and other things. And then I thought, you know, I'll, I'll try one of these, uh, to use one of these courses for a course on eco-psychology. And I, I did that. Um, but it was, you know, indoors and in, in my therapy office in town. And then one of the people who took that course decided to take the, the year-long training that I offer. And uh, she said, you know, she said, this is way better. <laughs> Being she said, it made such a huge difference. So I really heard that, you know, that was, yeah. that was really important to the whole way I go at it now. So Yeah, yeah. So how you mentioned Buddhist psychology, how related is the eco-psychology to Buddhist psychology? Well, I mean, for... In, it's all a matter of, you know, your own particular approach. But for me, they're very related. And um, as I said earlier, e ecology is about how everything interrelates. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's the, the profoundness of our interdependence, not just our interdependence with one another as human beings, but our interdependence with the earth, with the sun, with the, with the weather, with the animals, with, with everything. And to really, you know, get your head into that, uh, place of interdependence uh, is a is a big part of eco psychology and uh, Buddhist psychology is you know one of the central teachings in Buddhist psychology is uh, the dependent origination and the mutuality of of everything how everything arises as a co arising um, 
So for me, there's a very uh, ecological dimension to Buddhist psychology. If you know, not not all Buddhists would um, see it the same way. There, there's debates about how ecological some of the original you know Buddhist teachings are. But for me, um, uh, Buddhist psychology is very compatible with with mm-hmm. eco psychology, and the it circles around nicely to some of the critical points I was making earlier in that. Um, you know, there's just some very simple Buddhist teachings that, um, you know, for instance, um, the any unskillful state of mind or um, form of suffering we're caught and will always have at its base one of the three poisons of uh, greed or um, hatred or uh, delusion. Yeah. And uh, so Buddhist psychology is about cultivating the Buddhist practice about cultivating the opposite qualities of you know, generosity and love and compassion and wisdom. And uh, it's a very simple kind of socially engaged Buddhist exercise to look at the qualities that our society cultivates. Um, you know, the greed, the, the hatred and the delusion are very evident. And, and that ties to the, the whole structure of our society. It's not incidental. It, it's it's designed into our, our system. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing that delusion, you know, profoundly, you know, in the, the political system right now. We have a whole economic system that's based on self-centeredness and greed. And so if you, if you really get the Buddhist teachings and then you look at our society, it, it offers a profound... Uh, critical lens on on our society uh you know just like that it's just a very you know aha kind of moment when you when you see it it's just very simple yeah 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 so you you make the point that actually uh, it's in the dna of the system uh the that uh, the greed uh, the hatred the uh, um delusion um are essentially baked into it and so um right. You know that that's that's taking a distance from it and um, having the intention to veer away from it is in yeah. itself a revolutionary project. That's right, and the um, because we have a system that um, cultivates greed and hatred and delusion, we're constantly turning away from suffering, and then the system feeds on that suffering. And in order to turn out of that system, it then requires being able to tolerate the suffering that the system is generating, our, our, our felt experience of that. And so the Buddhist practice as well becomes um, creating a container to not keep turning away from the suffering through all of these escape strategies that just wind up creating more suffering and that are you know profoundly implicated in our treatment of the earth. Right, um, right. So turning out of these habit patterns of our culture means being able to tolerate the suffering that we're constantly escaping. Um, and so Buddhism comes in there as well in terms of its um, you know, practices and teachings for developing the ability to, to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that as we try to avoid the suffering, we fall into the trap of going into these practices, which then feed into the system and then feed into increasing the suffering. So the breaking the the vicious cycle is about 
being able to tolerate the suffering. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Buddhist practices are about, you know, developing the capacity to be with the suffering mm-hmm. instead of veering away from it. You know, mm-hmm. how would you define psychotherapy uh, compared to Buddhist practices in terms of dealing with suffering? Hmm. Well, I think that's a, that's a very germane question for the whole field of eco-psychology. What's the practice? Mm-hmm. And uh, what is this, how does psychotherapy need to change uh, in order to um, catch up with the transformations in psychology that eco-psychology imply? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you think about the eightfold path, say, of Buddhism, the practice of Buddhism, um, for me, that's what develops the container. But if the if the suffering, the the, the dukkha is is social dukkha, social suffering, uh, then we we need a more socially oriented practice, not just an individual focused practice. Yeah. And, and I think that's you know that's a question right now. What is what is what are the implications in terms of um, how we're practicing? And can we keep just lining up people one at a time at the therapy office, or do we have to do something that's more engaged? And so you know the work I'm doing is you know I'm trying to um, work in my community and uh, teach these courses and, and develop more sort of collective ways of thinking about the times we're in and how we need to be working together and holding the suffering and developing the inner work skills um, in, a, in a way that builds capacity within the community and, and makes us into culture makers, um, you know, as a way of, um, being in these times together in a way that can still make some, some beauty and that can form interrelationships um, that go um, outside the therapy office. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that, um, you know, that um, the dukkha, the suffering is something that is widespread. It's part of the social system. And so the answer to it is not just at the individual level, and in a way, contemplating it is a challenge of saying, what am I doing, not just at the individual level, but what am I doing vis-a-vis the world? And uh, your own response is to say that you're training people um, into this approach to, to contribute to spreading the way to deal with it. Hmm. Yeah, so it becomes a community building exercise, uh, a sangha building exercise, um, you know, a way of taking back um, the powers of making uh, culture and livelihood together and, and overcoming the, these disconnections between psyche and society and nature that I was talking about at the, the top of the talk, you know, what does that look like in practice? And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, this is really early days, and so we're, we're sorting it out, but, but these are the questions I'm holding. Yeah, yeah, but so that sense of um, um, in order to do something, it's, uh, you need to break the isolation. Definitely. That sense of um, community, because it's something that's so much larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so in terms of your practice as a therapist, um, you know, seeing clients, how does this affect your practice? Is this something that it's about changing you and then changing the way you relate to clients? Or is there some things that you would do that a more traditional therapist or a body-oriented therapist or an experiential therapist would not do that you do because of that focus on uh, eco-psychology? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a complicated uh, answer I'd, I'd want to give. Um, I mean, I've, uh, I'm, I'm in a process of shrinking my practice because, because of the limitations I see in the therapy world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I ha- do have clients who know my views on these things, and, and they say, you know, well, if we hadn't worked one-on-one, I wouldn't have got anywhere. I couldn't have done the more socially engaged stuff because I wasn't ready to do that, but now I am because of the individual work. So, you know, I appreciate that. Um, and at the same time, I'm trying to uh, experiment with um, these more socially engaged modes. But to get back to the idea of, you know, what am I, how is this, um, you know, my involvement in eco-psychology informing my practice? Well, it really depends on the client. And um, for, for some clients, you know, we go really, you know, quite deep into this work and, um uh they're willing to do sit spot exercises and you know i've I've got a an office um in a rural area and so um you know we'll go outside and we'll talk about the beaver they saw on the way to the therapy session and we'll really bring the natural world in we'll talk about we'll do dream work and we'll talk about dreams as you know messages that you're getting from life through your body and and so there's a whole framing of the work um, you know, that is different than a more conventional uh, yeah. therapy practice. But for other people, you know, they're not interested in that. And so, you know, I don't push it. <laughs> so uh, it depends. Yeah, it's a work in, work in progress. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you mentioned also that you're reorienting your work to something different. Um, so is that something that could inspire other people if you shared some of the ideas? Well, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of eco-psychology and, and the practice of it as something that connects these, these three terms, psyche, society, and nature. Um, and, um, you know, in a way that becomes a kind of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Say that the capitalist system is a system that colonizes our lives, that you know takes over our minds and our livelihoods, and you know, and in this sense, um, you know, generates tremendous suffering. Um, you know, and and I, I make a distinction between you know indigenous colonization and decolonization processes, and this kind of colonization through the kind of, uh, you know, economic systems that we have. Um, uh, the term I use that for that is, is um, you know, system colonization versus indigenous colonization, because these are very important distinctions, I think, in, um, uh, as we go forward. Um, but in some sense, the practice for me is becoming a practice of decolonization, which is, which is really about, you know, reclaiming our lives back from the system. 
And um, so organized by the system by virtue of living under the system and yeah. um, that sense of reclaiming our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, reconnecting, you know, uh, reclaiming our relationship with life and with one another and with uh, spirit and in uh, these ways that go very much against the, this is another way Buddhism comes in because, you know, the Buddha said everything I teach goes against the current, you know, he, mm-hmm. he was very radical that way. Um, and, and so I think that's very much the spirit of eco-psychology that if we're going to, if we live in a culture that is very much geared against life and we're trying to, you know, reclaim our relationship with life, then we're going to have to keep experimenting with how we do this. And, and it's going to mean, you know, going against the stream of our culture. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's so, the general so, spirit. What I'm so, so, so in a practical way, uh, how you do that is through your teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, um, the the teaching, but also, um, it, you know, I, I, I one of the t- teaching one of the classes I teach is called giving psychotherapy away. Right. So I'm trying to you know take these you know, all the, you know, things that we learn as therapists and, and offer them back to the, to the community. And uh, as I say, build, build the capacity in the community so that healing and uh, forming relationships um, that are um, skillful uh, isn't something that's just limited to therapists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, so the the healing and culture building uh, capacities are uh, sort of returned to the community rather than held by certain um, people who um, you know make a living that way. Right, right. So yeah, so 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 just it's an empowerment by sharing the skills. Yeah, and I th- you know, and I think more broadly, um, you know, I'm, I'm a thinker in the field of eco psychology and. Um, I'm trying to develop these uh, ideas and, um, you know, I I publish articles and uh, there's a book that's um, in a second edition that I uh, came out a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, For me, it's just also about trying to develop this field. You know, I'm just one guy and I'm I'm experimenting in small ways and, um, in a little community in Eastern Ontario. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's really about trying to get a conversation going about, you know, how to make psychology adequate to this historical moment and how can, you know, eco-psychology play a role in that conversation and how can the larger field um, change uh, in response to the, to the times we live in. And, and um, you know, in, in that sense, I'm, you know, I'm still pushing for a, a larger conversation as well as part of, you know, how I'm going at this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this seems like it might be a good place to end. I just want to check, take a moment to see if you want to add something or if this feels right to stop here. No, that feels fine, Serge. I think, uh, you know, I think that's not a, a bad little introduction. To <laughs> <laughs> This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast.
To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.